You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc. Uh, this episode is on prolonged concussion symptoms. Subtitle, why do some people get better in a week while others take months to years? Obviously a super frustrating thing for those that are impacted by PCS. And I just want to do some quick terminology here. PCS used to be called post-concussion syndrome. That recently changed to persistent concussion symptoms. Now that has been changed once again to prolonged concussion symptoms. The term persistent was thought to be too negative, meaning that they're going to persist for a long, 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 long time and you can never get rid of them. So they changed persistent to prolonged. So basically it's having symptoms for a prolonged period of time. Okay. So obviously Super frustrating, like I said, for all those that are impacted by PCS, prolonged concussion symptoms. The good news is, is that we're starting to figure out why this is. Why do some people get better in a week while sometimes it takes months to years for others? Once we understand what is going on from a physiological level, from a nervous system level, that's causing and driving persistent concussion symptoms, the good news is we can implement a plan to fix it. This is a two-part series. This week, I'm going to discuss the quote-unquote pathophysiology of what causes persistent concussion symptoms. Then, next week, we're going to talk about the top treatment options, the top evidence-based treatments for persistent concussion symptoms. And I'm going to lay out some of the evidence around this to show you the proof that this can be done. So, please listen, watch, whatever your medium of choice is. Uh, for those joining me live, join me next week as well. Um, so that you can develop a better understanding of how you can help either yourself or a family member or a friend who is currently suffering from persistent concussion symptoms. Because contrary to popular belief, as well as the trolls who talk shit to me on Facebook, concussion can be treated. A lot of people will say, there's no treatment for concussion. My neurologist or this doctor, whoever told me that you can't treat it, you just rest and you can't do anything. That is a load of crap, despite what people who like to talk crap to me on Facebook say. Uh, there's actually a lot of evidence that shows you can treat a concussion, and it's actually quite effective. So it is really quite simple as well, and I think that's the thing that people get confused about. If you understand the concepts, it is, it is quite simple. It's not easy because it takes a lot of hard work to actually have the consistency to make any of this stuff work for you, but it is it is a simple process. So it's not easy, but it is simple, all right? So let's get in. Today we are gonna talk about the evolution of concussion. How do we get from an acute concussion injury into prolonged symptoms? What happens along the way? And then I'm gonna talk about the five main causes or drivers of persistent concussion symptoms. And then next week, like I said, we're going to talk about the evidence. All right, so let's dive in. Acute concussion. A concussion is from acceleration of the brain. Basically, if you think about the brain like jello, if the brain is accelerated or decelerated, 
for whatever reason to a sufficient degree, what happens is that brain sh shakes and jiggles and moves all over the place. And with that movement comes stretching, shearing of different layers of brain tissue. And with that, you're going to get an excitation of the brain. So if you picture something being stimulated, if we stretch those neurons, they become stimulated and they start to fire and discharge. The concussion is what's called a neurometabolic cascade. So that excitation of brain tissue creates a whole bunch of symptoms because the brain starts firing and discharging in a haphazard manner. Um, I have a picture here that shows what happens in that and it causes ions that are inside the cell, namely potassium. Potassium is the K plus ions you see in this image that I'm showing. They, once the brain cells get stretched, those little holes open up on the, on the outside of the neuron and that potassium will leave. When that potassium leaves, it causes the depolarization of neurons, which means that that's what gets it excited. The second phase of that neurometabolic cascade is a drop in energy. So this other picture I'm showing here from Vagnozzi in 2010 shows that after the next few days after injury, we have this drop in energy. So we have here ATP levels on the y-axis and along the x-axis, we have controls on the far left bar. And then we have three days after injury, we see this little star here represents a significant difference. 15 days after injury, we still have a significant difference. 22 days after injury, we still have a significant difference. And 30 days after injury, that single star has disappeared. We have no more significant difference. So essentially concussion causes an excitation in the brain, and then it results in an energy deficit. And that energy deficit in human studies, this one here shows that it lasts somewhere between three and four weeks. So 22, somewhere between 22 and 30 days. Other studies have shown up to 45 days. So it's a little bit mixed on that. But anyway, we know that it lasts a few weeks. Okay. Now beyond that 30 day period, why do some people still have symptoms if it causes a metabolic injury? Okay. And that's where we start talking about persistent symptoms or prolonged concussion symptoms. Another thing to point out here is concussion is a functional injury, meaning that there is no observable damage to the brain. MRIs are normal. CT scans are normal in the majority of concussion cases. Sometimes there may be a bleed or a skull fracture or something else that may be in addition to the concussion, but a concussion injury itself is not visible on standard imaging because standard imaging looks at the structure of the brain and the structure of the brain in a concussion remains intact so it looks normal so concussion is what's called a functional injury it changes the way the brain functions but doesn't change anything to do with the structure of the brain okay so this is why you have this excitation phase and then you have this drop in energy neurometabolic cascade of events that happens there's also blood flow impairments that happen inside the brain and those uh, blood flow impairments are most attributed to an autonomic nervous system dysregulation. Your autonomic nervous system, picture it like a teeter-totter, okay? You have a sympathetic side and a parasympathetic side. Your, sympath your sympathetic side is fight or flight, and your parasympathetic side is your rest and digest. So picture the sympathetic side being um, the, oh my god, there's a bear chasing me, I have to get out of here, like all adrenaline pumping and let's go. Um, you know, blood flow to the working muscles. Parasympathetic is I just ate a pizza and I'm just going to chill on the couch and just 
relax. That's the parasympathetic side, all right? So these two things work in opposition to one another. When it's run from a bear time, the things that uh, activate your chill mode, they shut off and you go all in on the run from the bear. And if you're in chill mode, you know, you're not going to be thinking about running from the bear. You're very relaxed, right? So these things work like a teeter-totter and they should be in balance. After a concussion, we see much more sympathetic dominance. So the sympathetic side of our autonomic nervous system is increased. And so what happens is we have a, what's called a dysregulation. We're not on a teeter-totter anymore. The teeter-totter is slanted towards the sympathetic side. So the sympathetic side is dominant, which means this affects our heart rate. We have elevated heart rate. It doesn't fluctuate or respond to exercise as well. Uh, it changes the way we breathe. It changes our blood pressure and how we shunt blood around our body and through our brain. All of this affects how blood flows in the brain, both to the brain and also around and to different areas within the brain itself. This is dysregulation. So this is autonomic dysregulation. And that is one of the drivers of persistent symptoms, okay? So let's talk about prolonged symptoms. There's three kind of definitions of how we classify prolonged symptoms. Uh, one is what's called the ICD-10, the International Classification of Diseases, Volume 10. They define it as having three or more symptoms four weeks or more after the injury. So their cutoff point is three or more symptoms after four weeks. The DSM-4 criteria is three or more symptoms after three months. Okay, so depending on what criteria you utilize, you may qualify, you may not. ICD-10 criteria is basically after a month. DSM criteria is after three months. And the Berlin Consensus Statement, which is a sport concussion document, they identify children as having persistent symptoms if they are longer than one month. And they identify adults as persistent symptoms if they have symptoms lasting longer than 14 days. Okay, so two weeks. Here's kind of how I think about it. I like the 30-day cutoff mark for just, an, just in terms of making the definitive diagnosis of persistent concussion symptoms. I feel that it's probably the most widely used throughout the medical literature. You see mostly 30 days is used as the cutoff point for identifying someone who's chronic right? Persistent symptoms or prolonged symptoms is usually identified at that 30-day cutoff. It makes sense because that fits with the metabolic issue, right? We saw from that, that graph of the energy dropping between 22 and 30 days, we have no more energy deficit. So it makes sense that beyond that 30-day mark, we say, okay, that's persistent symptoms, right? The metabolic injury has resolved, but this person's still symptomatic. Why? All right. Now, Although we like the 30-day cutoff mark for identifying persistent symptoms, we actually start treating people as if they are PCS within the first 10 days. So we're, we kind of more stick to the Berlin in terms of how we adopt our treatment because what we have found is that if we don't start treating somebody, if they're still symptomatic at that 10 to 14-day mark and we don't initiate treatment, that person will still be symptomatic at 30 days. So it actually will prevent potentially PCS if we initiate early rehab. So we initiate treatment of somebody if they're symptomatic beyond 10 to 14 days. And 
if they're still symptomatic beyond 30, that's kind of when we make like the diagnostic quote unquote cutoff to say, yeah, this person has PCS. Okay. So in some cases, depending on the type of rehab, we may initiate it when it comes to exercise, for example, we're putting people on the treadmill as early as, you know, five days after injury. So, um, the interesting thing about PCS and persistent symptoms is that the same things that treat people with persistent symptoms, if they're started early, they can prevent persistent symptoms. All right. So the treatment is also the cure in this particular situation. So what causes it? Why do some people go on to have persistent symptoms and others don't? All right. This is the big question. We don't really know or we don't have one clear explanation, but it seems to be a variety of different factors. And it seems to not really reflect anything to do with the brain. And this is what trips a lot of people up because people think I had a concussion and I still can't think clearly. I had a concussion. And I still feel dizzy. I had a concussion and X, Y, Z. Okay. They think that the concussion damaged their brain and their brain is still damaged from the concussion. And this is why they can't think clearly. It's something wrong with their brain. But all of the evidence that looks at the brain specifically really falls short for an explanation for persistent symptoms. Like I said, oftentimes, obviously, structurally, the brains are intact. But even when you look at functional imaging in a lot of cases, they show no differences in concussion from somebody with PTSD. They show no differences in concussion from somebody with an anxiety disorder. They show no differences in concussion with somebody with a musculoskeletal injury. So we see here that it doesn't necessarily um, show us that the brain is driving a lot of these symptoms. The main things that seem to have the most evidence are things outside of the brain, which really creates a lot of confusion. And if people understand this, that treating a concussion isn't actually necessarily treating the brain. It's treating physiology as a whole to help the recovery. Then we can start to make a lot of progress because this is where the evidence is. So the main theories, the ones with the most support, there's five of them. Number one is blood flow. And that comes back down to, like I said before, the autonomic nervous system. So we have a high sympathetic dominance. In patients with persistent symptoms, that tends to linger. And that will affect their digestion, their sleep, their anxiety, their ability to concentrate and focus, all of these different things. So what do we do? We have to balance the autonomic nervous system. So that's number one. Number two, inflammatory or hormonal. So inflammation and hormones. Number three, visual and vestibular dysfunction. Number four, neck dysfunction. And I'm going to talk more about each of these. I'm going to dive into each one of them. So bear with me. Uh, psychological and mental health is number five. Okay. And there's a, it's very complex. All of these things are all kind of working together. And the best way to tackle it is to address all of them in a simultaneous fashion. Some patients will come to me and say, well, I tried vestibular rehab and it didn't work. Or I tried vision rehab and it didn't work. The problem here is that they tried one thing at a time. But your vision works with your neck and it also works with your vestibular system. So if you're doing vision therapy and you have a neck issue that's not being addressed, vision therapy is not going to work for you. So it's not that vision therapy wasn't effective for you. It's that you weren't doing everything in a way that allowed it to be effective for you. 
Okay, so it's a complex picture and it's a lot of moving parts and we need to address them all simultaneously. Hello from Sweden. Hello. Okay, concussion and PCS is very nonspecific. Many of the same issues or many of the issues that cause the same symptoms as concussion um, are from other things. All right, so this is something to think about. Even now we're talking about long COVID right? The idea of long COVID or persistent COVID symptoms. The symptoms are very similar to what's happening in concussion. And I think there's probably a few overlapping mechanisms, specifically when we talk about inflammation and neural inflammation. And so that's something that can be uh, thought of um, as well. So listen to this. The long-term effects or consequences of brain injury may be due to other things. Here's a study that was done in the clinical neuropsychologist um, and it's called Longitudinal Trajectories and Risk Factors for Persistent Post-Concussion Symptoms. And it was in military service members. This was a 15-year study looking at 138 U.S. service members. <coughs> Excuse me. Participants were classified into three groups. There was an uncomplicated concussion group. There was an injured control group, meaning that they were injured, but they did not have a concussion injury. So it was another type of injury musculoskeletal injury. And then they had a group that was a non-injured control group, so a group that had no injuries whatsoever. Then they looked at who met the diagnostic criteria for post-concussion syndrome. And what they found was that it didn't matter if you even had a concussion. There was a similar representation. So the prevalence for who met post-concussion disorder was high in all three groups. So only one of the groups had a previous concussion, but yet all three groups of military service members scored high in post-concussion disorder. Here's the conclusion. Reporting of new PCS over time was common in individuals with and without concussion. It would be erroneous to assume uncritically that post-concussion syndrome reported many years post-injury reflect only persistent symptomatology or can only be solely attributed to the direct consequences of brain injury. You cannot attribute the symptoms of post-concussion disorder directly to brain injury because people without brain injury report it in very high amounts as well, even people with musculoskeletal injuries. Here's some other studies. Here's one, Shapiro in the Journal of Neurotrauma. This was a prospective longitudinal observational cohort. They looked at children who presented to the emergency department with concussion and those that presented, um, or sorry, looked at people that presented with concussion and they looked at who got better and who did not. And then they compared them on functional imaging. And what they found was the two functional images looked the same. So the brain's looked the same in those that had gotten better and those that did not get better. So the conclusion, these findings indicate that delayed recovery from post-concussion syndrome in children is unlikely to be caused by microstructural damage to the brain because we're seeing it in both sets. Here's another one uh, from the Journal of Child Neurology. This one looked at um, uh, people with concussion and then orthopedic injury, which is again, injury to some other part of the body. Um, underwent MRIs and they looked at all sorts of different things. 
findings, um, what they found here is that they found no group differences for cortical volume or thickness. So that means the brain uh, volume or thickness. Youth with a history of concussion had higher post-concussion symptom scores than the orthopedic group, but the symptom ratings did not significantly correlate with cortical volume or thickness. Conclusion, findings do not support differences in cortical volume or thickness approximately two and a half years post-concussion in youth suggesting that either long-term cortical recovery or no cortical differences as a result of injury. So again, when we try to look at the brain to figure out what's going on with post-concussion syndrome, it falls short. The international consensus statement on concussion in sport looks at persistent symptoms and they say, persistent symptoms do not reflect a single pathophysiological entity, but they describe a constellation of non-specific post-traumatic um, symptoms that may be linked to coexisting and or confounding factors which do not necessarily reflect ongoing physiologic injury to the brain all right so let's look at what causes this i see questions coming in i will get to those on the live after we uh, do this recording okay so number one five main causes like i said blood flow autonomic dysregulation like i said we have a autonomic nervous system we have our sympathetic and our parasympathetic. Our sympathetic system will do things like dilate our pupils, increase the blood flow to our muscles so that we can run, increase our heart rate, increase our breathing, do all these things to get us ready and primed to fight or run away. Our parasympathetic system works on our digestion. Our sympathetic system shuts our digestion off. When you're running from a bear, you don't need to be worried about your digestion. You need to get the hell out of there, right? But when you're chilling, this is when it's time to digest. So your parasympathetic fixes your digestion, uh, works on your breathing, like relaxes the body, okay? calms everything down. Like I said, concussion imbalances that teeter-totter. It puts everything into sympathetic dominance, which results in blood flow impairments in the brain. Digestive issues. A lot of patients will say this after concussion. Foods they used to tolerate are out the window. They have all sorts of gas, bloating, IBS, etc. This is because sympathetic dominance has affected gut motility. Okay, and there's more to this on inflammation too that we'll talk about. Uh, it will increase your anxiety, increase your stress levels, increase your sleep problems, create hormone imbalances, cortisol dysregulation, all sorts of different adrenal issues. Uh, and cognitive problems, right? So autonomic nervous system dysregulation is a huge, huge thing. It's one of the main drivers of persistent symptoms. And so in order to fix that, come back next week and we'll talk about how you can do that, all right? So a lot of this has been tracked using blood flow as kind of a peripheral way to measure autonomic dysregulation. They'll measure it based on heart rate variability. They'll measure it looking at uh, various uh, blood flow pathways in the brain like cerebral autoregulation um, and neurovascular coupling, etc. And so we'll talk about some of these things, but here's a study here from Meyer in 2015. They tracked blood flow in various regions of the brain one day after injury, one week after injury, and one month after injury in college football players. What they found was at one day after injury and one week after injury, there was significant changes in cerebral blood flow, blood flow to the brain. Okay. And everyone who got better, that blood flow returned to normal. In the patients that had poor outcomes, meaning those that still had symptoms after 14 days, their blood flow remained impaired. So again, here we have it. We have people that are getting better, 
their blood flow seems to be getting better. People that aren't getting better, their blood flow seems to not be getting better. So here's this autonomic dysregulation, this blood flow issue. A lot of this stuff has been done by the University of Buffalo looking at ways of treating this, and we'll talk about that as well. So a lot of this stuff when it comes to blood flow, looking at heart rate variability, cerebral autoregulation, neurovascular coupling, cerebrovascular reactivity, a lot of this stuff is affected by our breathing rates. It's affected by our, our systemic blood pressure. It's affected by our heart rate variability. And once you create that, that dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system, it throws the whole system out of whack. And a lot of times when we look at patients at rest, we can't really pick these things up. And a lot of times this is how testing is done. It's done at rest and everything seems normal at rest. But in the studies done on concussion, we find that once we start getting them exercising, then we start to see the differences. And so when it comes to concussion rehab and recovery and returning an athlete back to sport, this is why complete concussion management is big on physical exertion testing. Because a lot of times patients will, like I said, at rest, if I'm just going to ask an athlete how they're doing at rest and not do any type of testing, I'm going to miss a lot. But if I say, all right, let's go challenge your system and see how things are going. I'm going to potentially pick up these issues. Okay. So a lot of the stuff at rest is normal. Once you start exercising, you pull out differences. Okay. So autonomic nervous system dysregulation, the extreme version of this is what's called dysautonomia. This can cause all sorts of issues like fainting, um, you know, major trouble sleeping, dizziness when you stand up too quickly or syncope, like I said, fainting, um, exercise intolerance, tunnel vision. The main uh, two types are orthostatic hypotension and POTS, postural orthostatic uh, um, tachycardia, meaning a high heart rate when you stand up. 11% of patients with POTS identify head trauma as being the initial incidence that caused their POTS. Uh, a study in 2016 that found that 41% of pediatric patients actually met the criteria for POTS. So we see here that the autonomic nervous system plays a huge role in persistent concussion symptoms. And there's a varying degree of this. Some people may have a little mild impairment. Some people have a really strong impairment. And with that strong impairment comes potentially these dysautonomia issues, which are a little bit harder to deal with. Let's talk about item number two, inflammation and hormones. We'll talk about inflammation first, and then we'll talk about hormones. Brain injury causes gut permeability, okay? So this is something that's been done for a while now. It's been studied for a while. Once the microglia inside the brain, those, those are the inflammatory cells. Once the brain undergoes an injury, you have microglia that become activated to try and uh, heal that injury. That inflammatory process actually increases permeability of the gut, meaning that the gut becomes a little bit more leaky. So things that, you know, may be, uh, you may have like a slight sensitivity to a certain food that you don't even realize, but after concussion, certain foods start upsetting your gut even more so than they did. So now what happens is that creates an inflammatory response, a kind of immune response. So the foods you're eating start um, making this situation worse. And that gut inflammation starts going back up to the brain and it starts to create fogginess, confusion, and all these other things that um, 
um, look a lot like concussion. So obviously the pathway here when it comes to inflammation is mostly through the gut, but it's also things like sleep and, and, and vagus nerve stimulation and all this stuff to try and balance the autonomic nervous system. So these things are intertwined with each other. Like I said, you can't just go after diet and not deal with autonomic function. They all kind of work together. All right. So let's look at the evidence here around inflammation. Uh, I just have a couple studies here, but uh, Sue et al. in 2014 found elevated levels of C-reactive protein, which is just a general um, uh, in, in inflammatory marker. When they found high levels of C-reactive protein at initial assessment, this was significantly predictive of who would have persistent symptoms. So again, higher inflammatory response higher chance of having persistent symptoms. The problem here obviously is that this particular marker is not reflective of the brain itself. So people coming in with a multitude of injuries are gonna have more inflammation and they're also more likely to have um, persistent symptoms just because of the, you know, the sheer number and, and, and extent of their injuries. Rathbone in 2015 uh, sorry, looked at a variety of different uh, conditions that would cause inflammation. So we looked at post-surgical. They looked at um, they looked at those with brain injuries and other other things. And they found that those that had you know inflammation from other things developed what they called post-inflammatory brain syndrome. So they would display symptoms and signs and cognitive dysfunction similar to concussion patients, even if they never had a concussion, but they had other inflammatory things that were happening inside the body. Okay, so inflammation causes a lot of similar symptoms as concussion. Here's another one here from the University of Toronto, Alex D. Patista. They found inflammatory markers were significantly associated with symptom burden in the acute stages of concussion. Symptom burden in the acute stages of concussion is also associated with persistent symptoms. If you have high symptoms at the, at the start of your concussion, you're more likely to have symptoms that last longer. So here you have a condition where you have inf higher inflammation equals higher symptoms. That is associated with uh, prolonged symptoms. It was different for males and females, though, which was interesting. Um, so in males, higher inflammation equaled higher symptoms. In females, higher inflammation actually equaled lower symptoms. So there may be some differences uh, male to female here. And there's a, here's, a, here's an image here that I'm showing, just looking at all the different pathways of how this can be mediated, but showing that a what they, they're, they're calling it in this a high-fat diet, but that's not accurate because high-fat diet to me means keto. This is looking at like just a, you know, think about like a McDonald's pizza. It's more like a high refined sugar, high refined carbohydrate diet. Um, and just what it does from an inflammatory pathway, right? It reduces brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It upregulates all sorts of um, pro-inflammatory pathways through the gut that's mediated through the vagus nerve. And this affects all sorts of different things when it comes to brain inflammation. And so the, the foods that we eat, affect all of our recovery. And this may be reflective of our metabolic health prior to injury. And it also could be reflective of how we respond after injury. So it seems that those with persistent symptoms may have had some underlying um, chronic inflammatory, systemic inflammatory issues happening and then proceeding after injury to have, you know, an exacerbation of that that causes persistent symptoms. Now, to affect change in this, again, come back next week and we'll talk about it, but you can see where I'm going with this is that a lot of this is healing the gut, okay? Fixing the gut and healing the autonomic nervous system, okay? Next, let's talk about hormones. I see some comments happening on hormones. 
Um, the pituitary gland sits in the this small little bony casing inside the brain. It's very susceptible to trauma just because of when the brain moves back and forth and this little piece is surrounded in this bony little cavern, it can get pulled on. And when it gets pulled on, it can affect how hormones are produced. There's little vessels in there that can be torn and damaged or even just like a little bit of that stretching can cause a dysregulation in these hormones. And um, here you go, okay, between... 15 to 50% of patients with traumatic brain injury of all severities develop permanent hypopituitarism, meaning low function in the pituitary gland. As high as 37.5% in concussion patients. Another study found 16% of concussion patients develop new pituitary dysfunction in the 6 to 12 months post-injury. Right? I've had people that would tell me when we talk about hormones that they've been diagnosed with growth hormone deficiencies and insulin deficiencies, uh, or not insulin deficiencies, sorry, um, thyroid dysfunctions, uh, hypothyroid after concussion injury, and this is why. Um, then another study from 2020, 47.6% of service members who sustained a concussion had anterior pituitary dysfunction in one of five measured hormones at three years after injury. The most commonly cited hormone dysfunction seems to be growth hormone, okay? So pathogenesis, why does this happen? Like I said, it can be from direct trauma. It can be vascular injury. It could be due to persistent neuroinflammation. So again, I put these two together, hormones and neuroinflammation, because we're treating it a lot in the same way. By affecting the gut, by, by, by regulating the autonomic nervous system, we may be able to create change in our hormones. And uh, I think that's important, okay? So some of the clinical presentation, which may lead you to think there could be some hormone dysregulation, depression, anxiety, fatigue, sleep disorders, emotional issues, sexual dysfunction, cognitive dysfunction, decreased quality of life are all common in pituitary dysfunction. So something to keep in mind. So there you go. That's number two is hormone and inflammation. Number three, visual and vestibular dysfunction. Now, this is pretty self-explanatory. Your visual system, obviously 50% of your brain uh, is involved in your visual function, whether it's ocular motor function, processing of um, you know, focal and peripheral information. And your vestibular system is your balance system, where you are in space uh, and all of that. It's often difficult to figure out what's coming from the eyes and what's coming from the, from the vestibular system and also what's coming from the neck. Number four is going to be neck dysfunction. And all of those three systems are coordinated. So this is usually people with headaches, balance disturbances, even patients with visual dysfunction. It may show up as reading difficulties. Okay, you may have trouble. Um, you know, you may think you have a cognitive problem, but really, what's going on is that when you're reading, your eyes are skipping on the page, and you're not processing the information properly because you're not seeing it properly. So even a visual dysfunction may display as a cognitive problem, and visual dysfunctions may be due to the eye problem, but it may also be to, due to the neck problem, all right? So we have to keep that in mind too. But let's talk about vision. Approximately 70% of patients after concussion will have some sort of visual disturbance. Half of patients will have an accommodative disorder, so the ability for the lens to focus either near and far vision. They'll have 50% will have a convergence insufficiency, inability to bring the eyes in together to focus on something. So that will affect depth perception. It will affect reading and the ability of the eyes to work together. 29% will have saccadic dysfunction. 46% will have some combination of those two. Okay. 
Vision is integrated into most activities we do, whether it be reading, walking, sports, you name it, vision is there. It's 50% of brain function. And so I think that it only makes sense that we would have potentially some dysfunctions uh, in vision after. Now, the good thing is this can be rehabilitated under the right approach. Vestibular is, again, same thing. Dizziness, sensations of being off balance, motion sensitivity, visual motion sensitivity, um, maybe central, maybe peripheral. Again, this is treatable. Several studies have demonstrated that vestibular rehab can be effective for this. We'll talk more about that next week. Neck dysfunction. There is a direct overlap with all concussion symptoms. You cannot tell the difference. So listen to this. You cannot tell the difference between somebody with concussion and somebody with whiplash. And we did this study. When I was doing my uh, sports medicine fellowship, uh, with I was actually working with John Letty, who's very famous in the concussion world. And we looked at patients with chronic whiplash and patients with chronic concussion. And we tried to see if we could tell them apart. So we gave them outcome measures for concussion and outcome measures for whiplash. And guess what? They were identical. We could not tell the two groups apart. So whiplash and concussion look identical. Whiplash and concussion also happen together. Concussion is due to acceleration, deceleration of the brain. Whiplash is due to acceleration, deceleration of the neck. The mechanism of injury is the same. The head and neck are connected. Anytime there's enough acceleration to the brain to cause a concussion, there's obviously enough acceleration through the neck to cause damage to the neck. So that creates dysfunction. The symptoms are a direct overlap. I'm showing here a picture of the two side by side. Look at concussion. Look at whiplash. Headaches. Dizziness and balance problems, cognitive disturbances, memory and concentration impairments, visual disturbances, fatigue, psychological distress. All of these happen in both conditions. And the mechanism of injury is acceleration in both conditions. Whiplash also takes longer to recover. So it only makes sense that if you get a concussion and you're experiencing headaches and dizziness, that may be initially from the concussion. But if no one's working on your neck, the concussion goes away, but the neck dysfunction is still there and contributing to those symptoms. You still think that it's your brain, but it's actually the neck issue. So we treat people's necks right away. If you come in with a concussion, we're going to start working on your neck and treating you as if you have a whiplash because we know you do. We know you do. If you've had a concussion, you have a whiplash. That's it. Okay. Study done in 2006 by Lorianne Hines found that 100% of patients with concussion also had whiplash. Okay, so they are happening together 100% of the time. I'm going to go through a few studies here looking at how whiplash looks a lot like concussion. So here's the title, Disturbances of Cognitive and Emotional Functions in Patients with Whiplash. Cognitive and Emotional Functions in Patients with Neck Issues After Whiplash Injury. Hmm. Okay, here's another one. Whiplash Injury and Mild Traumatic Brain Injury, Differential Effects on Cognitive Functioning. I'm going to read this out. Until today, only two studies were devoted to evaluate possible differences in cognitive function between whiplash and mild traumatic brain injury. In these studies, both patient groups did not differ significantly with regard to measurements of attention, memory, and visual, spatial, and executive function. Therefore, these authors conclude that MTBI patients, meaning concussion patients, do not perform more poorly on cognitive tests than whiplash patients, as might be expected from the severity of trauma. Here's another one, sensory motor disturbances in neck disorders affecting postural stability, head, and eye movement control. So neck disorders affecting how your eyes move. 
Another one, sensory motor function and dizziness and neck pain. Another one, reduced cognitive functions in a group of whiplash patients with demonstrated disturbances in the posture control system. So there's your balance, there's your dizziness. Trunk sway in patients with and without mild traumatic brain injury after whiplash. Conclusions, a similar pattern of balance impairment was present in patients with whiplash injury with and without MTBI, concussion. Cerebral perfusion, meaning blood flow to the brain in patients with chronic neck and upper back pain. Similar patterns that we see in concussion patients on spec scans, all right? So neck obviously looks exactly like concussion. The mechanism is the same. The symptoms are the same. The treatment uh, is quite a bit different. And so if you're not having somebody look at your neck, you probably should be, okay? Next up, finally, we're going to look at the psychological. Now, people always get a little bit with their back up on this one when I talk about the psychological because they've probably been told by healthcare professionals that it's all in your head. And that's not what we're saying. Psychological doesn't mean all in your head. It doesn't mean that you're faking it. It doesn't mean that you're crazy, okay? Oftentimes, it's the unknown and not having the right information that kind of contributes to this, right? So misinformation. If you start Googling stuff and feel that your brain is damaged, you know, you're going to think that your brain is damaged. If you're listening to the media talking about all the long-term effects of concussions over and seeing NFL players and de dementia and all this stuff, you're going to start to experience that, okay? And if you're given the right information and if somebody educates you on this, uh, it can really help, okay? Now, oftentimes there's pre-existing issues, people with pre-existing anxiety, people with pre-existing depression. This can get exacerbated with the injury. But also remember what I said, autonomic nervous system, your sympathetic system, that's an anxiety response. So even if you've never had any anxiety before, the injury itself can cause an anxiety disorder, which then, you know, kind of self-fulfills itself because you're feeling anxious and that's going to make you feel more anxious. And so it's a, it's a, a perpetual cycle here. So the length of recovery starts to influence mental health as well, right? If you've been recovering and it's taking you a long, long, long time, you're going to start to feel that something's really wrong with you. That's going to increase your anxiety, right? If you're told that the only thing that can be done is you have to sit in a dark room and do nothing and, and you know, not socialize with friends and not go on your phone and not go to work and not earn a paycheck and be on disability, you may start to develop depression and that's going to start to make you feel worse and that's going to exacerbate your symptoms, okay? So the two things are so intertwined with each other. Sometimes pre-existing mental health leads to issues with persistent symptoms. Sometimes persistent symptoms leads to issues with mental health. All we know is that they're both intertwined and that they are a barrier to recovery. Whether they're pre-existing or post-injury, then it doesn't matter because we have to look at it and we have to treat it and we have to work with them, all right? So I'm gonna talk about some different ways that the psychology plays into post-concussion symptoms, all right? So number one is resilience and coping. So there's been studies done looking at um, adaption. So high versus low adapters, okay? Somebody with a high adaption score or a, a, somebody who's a high adapter is able to cope better with the situation or change and just say, you know, I'm going to kind of roll with the punches. Somebody who's a low adapter uh, may not handle it the same way. They have stronger negative beliefs about the condition, all right? Now, those that are in the low adapter scores tend to have higher initial symptom severity scores. And remember what I said, having a high initial symptom severity score is a predictor 
for having prolonged symptoms. So if you come in and you have a high symptom severity score, is that necessarily due to having a more severe injury or is that because you may be a low adapter? Okay, so if you come in with stronger negative beliefs about the injury and how it's going to affect you, you may be have a higher likelihood of ending up with persistent symptoms. Those that had uh, those that were low adapters were more likely to still be symptomatic six months after the injury versus those that were high adaptive and had pretty much all recovered 100%. Okay, so that's one thing. Recall bias. So this is another one. Recall bias. There's a thing called the good old days bias. This is when people misremember pre-injury. So they have an injury and then it's been six months since their injury and they have a really hard time remembering what it's like to be normal, right? Oftentimes, those that are uninjured will have days where we're really tired, days where we're not putting things together, days where we're you know, not thinking clearly or maybe we're distracted, okay? After a concussion, those days all get attributed to the concussion itself rather than thinking that, well, it's a normal part of life to be distracted, to be fatigued, all of these different things. And so potentially there's a misattribution of quote unquote symptoms that may actually be reflective of normal day-to-day um, -day life in you know the lived human experience. But if you've had a concussion, everything gets thrown into the concussion basket. Oh, I'm really tired ever since this concussion. I just can't seem to, you know, stay awake or whatever. You know, ever since the concussion, I can't seem to concentrate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So everything gets chalked up to um, to the concussion injury itself. So there's a misattribution of symptoms. The good old days bias, um, and this has been studied in concussion patients. If we compare, if we compare patients with persistent concussion symptoms and we ask them to rate their pre-injury symptoms. So if I were to give you a symptom severity score, right, and I'm asking you to rate your symptoms, headache, zero to six, dizziness, zero to six, trouble concentrating, zero to six, and that's a post-injury symptom score. If I'm to say, hey, Johnny with a concussion, I want you to rate yourself as you feel that you were three months before your injury, okay? The concussion patient is likely to rate themselves as zero on everything. If I was then to take that same measure and just go to 100 random people on the street that don't have concussions and ask them to do the same thing, they would report headache, two, you know, dizziness, zero, trouble sleeping, yeah, three, fatigue, two. They would give themselves a score, okay? Because we're not all zeros all the time. And when you compare it, if you compare patients with concussion and how they rate their pre-injury selves, they rate themselves as statistically better than the actual population. So that we know this is called the good old days bias where we think that everything before the injury was all great, but everything after was terrible, all right? That's not reality. And so I think that's something that needs to be considered. Fear avoidance behaviors is another one. So fear avoidance is obviously the fear of symptoms increasing. So oftentimes patients are told that anything you do that increases symptoms is bad for you. Exercise is bad for you. Going on and you know, looking at screens is bad for you. Reading a book or doing cognitive or going to work is bad for you. What, what patients start to believe is that this is harmful and it's not true. Because in fact, doing cognitive activity helps your brain heal. Doing exercise helps your brain heal. But when you're told that that stuff is harmful, you start to avoid activity. 
right? I don't go to supermarkets because I get too dizzy. I don't go to social gatherings because I can't, you know, I get symptomatic. I don't uh, exercise because it makes my symptoms worse. I don't do X, Y, Z. That makes you worse over time. The more you pull back from the world around you, the more the world around you is symptom provoking. The more you challenge yourself, the better you actually get. It's hard, right? And the example I always use is like, you know, weightlifting or exercise. If I haven't lifted weights in six months, which it's even been more now since COVID, I've been doing exercise home, but I haven't been gone in and done like, you know, heavy squats or anything. If I'm going to go in and just go, I'm going to load up the bar like I did last year. Guess what? I'm probably going to hurt myself and I'm probably going to be really, really sore for days and days after. Now, if I was to say, you know what, I'm going to do it anyway, I'm just going to do a bit less, but I'm going to push myself and eventually get there. And I took that attitude. Eventually I would get there. But I'm not going to get stronger by avoiding lifting weights. And this is the same thing. You're not going to get better at dealing with crowds by avoiding crowds. You're not going to get better at exercise by avoiding exercise, right? And the things that currently provoke your symptoms, if you don't challenge that process and you pull back from it, your symptoms will continue to get worse and worse and worse, where even less activity now causes symptoms, where you can't do anything without symptom provocation. So this is what's called fear avoidance behaviors. It's counterproductive, but it's completely understandable because this is what patients are told and this is what they're led to believe and it's bullshit. And this is why I'm trying to spread this information to get people to think about this in a different way, okay? This is on the mental health side, fear avoidance behavior. PTSD looks the same as concussion. It's almost impossible to separate these two conditions clinically. Patients that have been in a major car accident oftentimes will be displaying symptoms which look like concussion, but guess what? Most of it's PTSD. So this needs to be dealt with in a different way. Um, uh, military vets, when they bring them back from you know Iraq and Afghanistan, and even when they look at brain scans, their functional brain scans look the same. Patients with PTSD and without. Patients with concussion versus PTSD look almost identical. It's very, very uh, difficult to bring them, uh, to separate them. And the next one, the last one I'm going to talk about here, there's a lot more to this, but just to keep it kind of somewhat short, even though I'm almost at an hour, is called default mode interference. So I'm showing here on the screen a picture of three different brains. And you can see here we have the salience network at the top middle, and then we have the default mode network on the left side, and we have the central executive network on the right side. And you can see here in the middle it says anti-correlation, meaning that the two things, when one is on, the other is off. The default mode, when it's on, the executive network is off. When the executive network is on, the default mode network is off. Anti-correlation, okay? Here we are. The default mode, and I've talked about this before, the default mode is your self-talk. It's also called your ego. It's your sense of self. It's the little voice in your head. It's your little daydreamer. So when you're just kind of thinking, going about your day, being like, oh yeah, I got to do that later. And oh yeah, I got to do that. And I got to call that guy and blah, blah, blah. You're just kind of going about your day. That little voice inside your head that's just, you know, chattering about whatever is going on around you. Okay. That little voice, that's your daydreamer. That's your default mode. Okay. That's kind of just your set point. Your executive network is when you're focused on something, when you're in the zone, when you're doing something and you're completely focused on that, right? Right now, I'm speaking to you guys. I'm completely focused on what I'm talking about and trying to tell a story, right? I'm not 
thinking about like what my kids are doing over there or what I have to do after this. I'm thinking about this. So that's my executive network. I'm in the zone. I'm focused on that. So when I'm in the zone focused on that, my default mode shuts off, which allows me to perform. It allows me to do what I have to do. It allows me to tell the story. Sometimes if my default mode network turns on, I get confused and distracted and I forget where I am. Okay, I forget what I'm talking about. I lose track of what I'm talking about. This happens from time to time. This is called default mode interference. Default mode interferes with my central executive function. Okay, you see this in sports, you see this in athletes, you see this in other conditions. What we also see it in is people with persistent concussion symptoms. So if we were to do an fMRI on somebody, this is an fMRI image here. If we were to do an fMRI on somebody with persistent concussion symptoms, what we see is when they're doing a task, they have their executive network on and they also have their default mode network on. So they're, they perform poorly on the task because they're not, they're not all in, they're not fully concentrated and they're burning more energy as it goes. So they're having a lack of focus, right? Which is preventing them from being able to do the cognitive task they're relying on, but also it's fatiguing them because they're relying on multiple brain networks to do the same amount of work, okay? We see this in patients with persistent concussion symptoms, but we also see this in patients with anxiety disorders, patients with stress, okay, people with PTSD, all right? So when we see this in a concussion patient, do we say this is due to concussion or is this patient suffering from an anxiety disorder? Because people with anxiety tend to ruminate. They tend to not be able to be in the moment, right? This is where meditation comes in and mindfulness. Mindfulness is a practice to train your executive network to be completely focused on what is going on around you. How does this feel? What do I hear? Let's focus on my breathing. Okay, this allows you to train yourself to be in the executive moment, to turn off the default mode network. And we see this in people with experienced meditation practices. People that are experienced meditators, like a 10-year practice type of thing, we see them completely able to turn off default mode in a very efficient way. This is why things like meditation and mindfulness can be helpful to concussion recovery. And this is how mental health plays a role in your cognitive function. So you may think that because of your concussion, you have cognitive problems, and this is why you're unable to focus, unable to concentrate. The reality of it is that you may have had a concussion and now you have an anxiety disorder, and that's why you can't focus. So if you're gonna consistently go about your life trying to find somebody to fix your brain, to fix your memory, to fix your cognition, but you're not gonna address the fact that you actually have an underlying anxiety disorder or that you may, you're not going to be able to get anywhere with that. So the reason I bring this up and the reason I have these somewhat difficult conversations with patients and a lot of times people get pissed off at me for pointing this stuff out or challenging this idea because there's still this stigma around mental health. And that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get people to realize that there's help out there that if we consider this and we go after it and we find the right supports and we find the right help and we learn how to you know, work with our brains and we learn how to work with our mental health that we can actually affect change. So let's do a recap here to summarize all this stuff. Prolonged concussion symptoms are basically any symptoms you experience beyond the typical recovery period. Okay, let's put it at two weeks. 
The physical definition that we like to use is beyond 30 days, okay? But you should be getting treatment if you're still symptomatic after two weeks. You should definitely be finding somebody who knows what they're doing because otherwise you're going to be there after a month. And if you don't get treatment after a month, you're going to be there two years from now, okay? It needs to be worked on. You can't just let it go, okay? These symptoms do not seem to reflect ongoing injury to the brain, but rather a complex integration of dysfunction in one or more body systems, okay? Five main areas of dysfunction seem to be, number one, autonomic nervous system, right? Sympathetic dominance versus parasympathetic. This affects sleep, digestion, blood flow, heart rate, anxiety, panic, confusion, fatigue, etc. Number two, inflammation and hormone issues. This seems to be primarily mediated through the gut. Concussion and brain injury is strongly associated with decreased gut motility and increased gut permeability. This affects not only our neurotransmitter production, but also can increase inflammation in the nervous system, cause headaches, fatigue, cognitive issues, depression, mood problems, and a whole bunch of other things. So if we're not addressing our gut health, then we will not be able to recover. Number three, visual and vestibular. Your eye movement and balance disorders, this can also look like cognitive issues. Number four is the neck. Concussion comes with whiplash. Symptoms are identical. Whiplash takes longer to recover. So if you've had a concussion and you're still having symptoms, it may be coming from your neck. Okay? Five, psychological, your thoughts become your reality. And sometimes we are our own worst enemies. Mental health is becoming more understood in the recovery of a variety of conditions. Not only just concussion, but also chronic pain and other uh, musculoskeletal injuries are driven by our mental health, okay? Seems to be one of the biggest drivers of concussion symptoms, um, one of the biggest barriers also to overcoming uh, those concussion injuries and those looking to get better. So be sure to join us next week and we're gonna cover the top evidence-based treatments for concussions and those prolonged symptoms. So be sure to join us then. I hope you guys enjoyed this one and um, that's it for me. I'll see you next week. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.